I love Sunday nights. This is when, uh, as John MacArthur says, if you're spiritual, you come on Sunday morning. If you're really spiritual, you come on Sunday night. Turn with me to Hebrews 9, and we'll look at the last verse, verse 28. In this series in Strength in the Desert, we've been examining how to wait on the Lord, and it really is an endless topic. This will be our 15th message in it. We could go for another 15 easily. This is a time when God seems to have gone silent. He seems to not be moving in your life when certain parts of your life are now in a holding pattern and it shows no sign of letting up. There's no foreseeable end. And for some of you, you may be in situations where you already are 100% certain that you will be waiting beyond this lifetime for certain things. And we've been looking to faithful men and women of the Bible to show us how they waited on the Lord, what they did. And all of the lessons that we've gleaned from them are to be lessons. Be brave when you don't feel brave. Be delighted to be a nobody. Be a blessing now. Be content with what you cannot control and, and so forth. And the last two, I think, have been hefty and mighty examples for us to use King David himself in Psalm 62 and the perfected saints in heaven of Revelation 6, King David's lesson was be relaxed in God's timing and the martyrs in heaven taught us to be comforted by heavenly examples. But I've very purposefully saved this particular text for last, for this message and this final message in this series, because I think this is the most important lesson from the most important group of people that we can relate to, that is from normal Christians from Christians in the church of Jesus Christ still struggling on this earth, still in the midst of their trials, still in the midst of their waiting, from normal believers who have a lesson for us. And that lesson from these eternally minded Christians is be looking for Christ. Be looking for Christ. And to to learn this lesson, we're going to do something a little unusual for us and literally jump into the middle of a sentence to focus on this one group of people, eternally minded Christians, And when it comes to waiting on the Lord, there's an obvious lesson, I think, an obvious conclusion that we'll come to from Hebrews 9.28. And I'm going to dance around that conclusion for a long time before we get to it, but you'll probably guess it by the time we get to it. So let's just jump into the middle of this sentence. Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, you know that I'm not going to just take the middle of a sentence without telling you the context, because we have to understand this. How did we get here? What's the point? And I think that's really going to help build a foundation for the lesson that these believers have for us. How did we get to verse 28? Well, Hebrews chapter 9 begins by making a comparison of the old covenant, what the author calls in verse 1, the first covenant and the new covenant, a comparison between the two. And specifically, he's comparing the tent, the tabernacle in the wilderness, and by implication, the, the eventual permanent temple built by Solomon. He's comparing the, the tent built on earth with a different tent. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. So the author is giving a reminder background to the Jewish readers of the book of Hebrews of the design of the place of worship. 
This was the second most important place in the tent, in the tabernacle, the temple, the holy place. And it had elements in it which symbolized the presence of God on earth. And now he takes us behind the second curtain. In verse 3, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant, the tablets of the covenant rather. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now speak in detail because he's making another point. This is just an illustration. And by the way, he's writing to Jewish readers who never got to live in the glory days of Israel. They never saw this. All they had was the description from the law, from the book of Exodus and Leviticus and so forth. All they had was the collective memory of their forefathers about what it was like to actually engage in temple worship and tabernacle worship. Most of the readers of the book of Hebrews had never experienced this. They weren't in the wilderness. They weren't there when Moses was there. They weren't there when Aaron was there. And this is a precious memory to them. It's something that they would aspire to and hope to return to. And now the author talks about what happens in the holy place. And in the most holy place, or the holy of holies. In the holy place, the second most important place, a lot of priests could go in there to perform their duties. They would do the lighting of the lamps, the the placement of the bread of the presence, all of these things symbolizing the presence of God on earth. But only the high priest could go into the most holy place. In verse 6, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, But into the second, only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And so because mankind's relationship with God is now a mediatorial relationship, meaning that that we cannot approach God directly, we must have mediation. The Israelites could not approach God directly. They had to come through representatives. They had to have somebody between them and God. Only a few could come to the holy place and only one could come to the most holy place. And the height of the entire worship year, the height of the liturgical year for the faithful Jew was the Day of Atonement. It's the only day in which fasting was commanded. This was the day when the nation was was offered, they had sin, their sin paid for, and this weighed very heavily, particularly on the high priest. Did you notice it said that the the most holy place was only entered one time a year? This is the essentially the throne room of God on earth, and it was to remain empty because only God's presence was there until the Day of Atonement. This would be weighing very heavily not only on the high priest but on all the people. This was a, this was a big day. This was a day of intense, intense uh, suspense because if God chose not to forgive Israel's sin, this had, would have massive consequences. And we've seen this in Israel's history. It had the consequences of invasion, disease, famine, death. And so God choosing to withhold his hand of forgiveness would literally cost lives, maybe cost them their families, their nation. 
And so, according to Leviticus 16, the high priest was required to offer a blood sacrifice of an entire bull just for himself, for his own sins, before he would dare represent the people of God, represent God to the people. Then he was to sacrifice a goat that was for the sins of the people. So there he is, he's sprinkling the bull's blood on the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the the throne of God on earth. Then he's sprinkling the goat's blood on the mercy seat. He's in the very presence of God in God's earthly throne room. And now, having laid this groundwork for the original Jewish readers of Hebrews, He's reminding them of the great days of temple sacrifice and now the author tells of the great high priest who is without sin. In verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, here's the comparison, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now the author isn't talking about the earthly tent, the earthly place of the throne of God, but the real one, the heavenly place, upon which the earthly ones are, 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 are a copy. Jesus has entered this place now at the ascension of Christ. He secured redemption for all who would believe. He didn't bring the blood of goats and the blood of bulls. He brought his own blood. He brought the scars of his own wounds. And so right now, at this moment, like the high priest of Israel Jesus is in the most holy place in heaven, offering himself as a completed sacrifice, a completed payment for sin. And now skip with me to verse 24. The author summarizes his comparison. He characterizes Christ as the true and the once for all sacrifice sufficient to pay for our sins. In verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The the appearance of Christ that's referenced here in Verse 26 is a broad, all-encompassing combining of all of Christ's interactions with mankind on earth. So you have this phrase, at the end of the ages. But this is clearly referencing his first coming when he died on the cross. The quote is here, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Having now dealt with the first coming, the author now turns to the second coming of Christ and we see the heart attitude of the church and he he gives the illustration that just as the death of human beings happens once with a certain expectation of the judgment of God, so the death of Christ once was sufficient to bear away our sins. And he gives this illustration in verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many 
will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, I want to just keep dancing around the obvious conclusion about waiting on the Lord by simply looking phrase by phrase at verse 28. I think we need to delve a little more deeply into it to better understand it. First of all, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. In Greek, the definite article is included to bear the sins of the many. And generally speaking, that means that it's, it's specifying that this is not comprehensive, meaning that the many doesn't mean everyone. So Christ came to bear the sins away of many, not all. Does that make sense? It is very specific. This is what, what Calvinists call limited atonement or definite atonement. And so the sacrifice of Christ was not for all people. It was for the many. When he was instituting the Lord's table, Jesus said in Matthew twenty six twenty eight, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He proclaimed in Mark ten forty five, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I think it's very clear that if Christ came to die for the sins of every single person, then why would there be countless people in hell? Why would there even be a hell? This would mean that Christ died for all people, but guaranteed the salvation of none. Meaning that the death of Christ was insufficient, it was ineffective, it was ineffectual, it was inadequate. It wasn't enough. Now, rather than worrying about the theological intricacies of who the many are, just make sure you're in them that you're part of the many, that you have received Christ's offering to bear away your sins. And so now, having atoned for the sins of the many, the next phrase, Christ will appear a second time. Now, this is like stepping on a theological landmine here. And before we jump to the conclusion that this is speaking exclusively, specifically of the second coming of Christ, we have to pause for a moment. Now, admittedly, This certainly directly says that Christ will appear, literally be seen, become visible a second time. But we have some end times variables that we have to consider. Here's the first variable we have to consider. We believe the Bible's clear teaching of the resurrection of church age saints and the taking up into heaven of living saints and that this happens at the same time. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, where? In the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And theologians have long called this taking up the rapture after the Latin translation of the Greek word harpazo, which just is, is translated in the ESV, caught up. And so it's a translation of a translation of a translation, and we get the word rapture from that. So if anybody says rapture isn't in the Bible, that is not true. It is there. It just has to be translated three times. John 14, 1 through 3 speaks of the rapture as well when Jesus said he would take us to be where he is. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 51 and following tells us that not all Christians will die, but the last generation will be changed, will be transformed at the same time that the dead are raised. And somebody would say, well, the rapture isn't in that passage. Well, it doesn't have to be because it's in the First Thessalonians 4 passage and you simply harmonize the two very easily. 
And some might say, well, I, I have a hard time believing the rapture. Well, let me give you a few people to ask about it. Ask Enoch. He was raptured. Ask Elijah. He was raptured. Ask Jesus. He was raptured. We just call it the ascension. The two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 will be raptured. Philip, the evangelist, was raptured sideways in the book of Acts. He went from one place to another. And so this happens in Scripture. Why is that so difficult for us to believe? So that's the first variable, that there is the rapture resurrection event that we believe Scripture teaches very clearly. There's another variable. Along with that, we also believe that Scripture teaches a literal, bodily, physical second coming of Christ. Not part way where we meet him in the air, but all the way to the earth. Zechariah 14, 1 through 21 probably gives the most detail. Messiah returns to conquer the earth at the last battle. He rescues faithful Jews. He arrives at the Mount of Olives, the place from which he ascended into heaven in the first place. The second coming of Christ will happen after the great tribulation of seven years. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29, Jesus himself affirmed this. He said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear in, the, in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, very clear here, this is not speaking of the rapture, the gathering of the elect, different event. This is the gathering of the living saints who were left on earth those saved after the rapture. Two different things. Very similar passage in Mark 13 and Luke 21 indicates that signs will be evident that the return of Christ is near. That during those last couple of years, things will be happening that say, you know, we're thinking that the end of the world is just about here. When things like the whole ocean being, being uh, poisoned and 100 pound hailstones falling and earthquakes and mountains falling and islands sinking, you know, I'm thinking something's happening here. Those are clear signs. But there's a third variable that we have to consider. And that is that we believe that the Bible teaches a literal rapture and a literal second coming of Christ and that there are significant differences between those two that we have to consider. The rapture is an event with no signs that it's coming. It is for a blessing. It doesn't reference the setting up of a kingdom in which now glorified bodies are received. We meet the Lord in the air and the saints are going up to heaven as Jesus gathers the elect. The second coming, though, is an event with many signs given that it's coming not for blessing but for judgment of the earth that has many references to the setting up of the kingdom with no mention of glorified bodies and the saints are coming down to the earth and the angels are gathering the elect, the surviving believers of the great tribulation who got saved after the rapture. So they're very, very different. They're very different. In fact, the chronicle of the great tribulation on earth, Revelation 4 through 18, makes no mention of the church at all. Why? Because we're not there. And suddenly in Revelation 19, we do see the church. And where's the church? In heaven, getting ready to come back down. So in Hebrews 9, 28, which one is it? When it says the second appearing, appearing the second time, 
because there's arguments for both. The rapture argument is strong. The, the final phrase, those who are eagerly waiting for him, this is a reference to saints on earth who have not yet met Christ face to face. This is pre-rapture. The church is still on earth awaiting their first meeting with him. This can't be a reference only to tribulation saints because it's too narrow. It wouldn't be broad enough for this audience. But the second coming argument is strong also. His second appearing seems to be visible. And the question, of course, is visible to all or visible to some? In the rapture, Christ doesn't come all the way to earth, according to 1 Thessalonians 4. So we could legitimately say that this is not an appearance of Christ on the scale of his second coming, which the whole world clearly will see. And in fact, this appearing here, this is one of three appearings of Christ in this passage. Verse 26 He appears on earth to deal with sin. That's his first coming. Verse 24, he appears back in heaven to to be before God on our behalf. And then here in verse 28, he appears to consummate his whole salvation plan. So which is it? Is it the rapture or is it the second coming? Well, based on my research, I can definitively say yes. It's both. It's both. The context here shows us that there's good evidence that this is not a text from which we're to argue the intricacies of rapture versus the second coming of Christ. That's not the point. Verse 28 is just speaking of, and the theological term is the whole shebang, the whole everything. How do we know this? How does the context tell us that that's what the author is doing? Because in verse 26, he does exactly the same thing, only more obviously. In verse 26, he says that Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages. What does that sound like? That sounds like the end of everything. But to do what? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Wait a minute. That's his first coming. And it's combined with the end of the ages. So he's already just done a big package deal here. The author combines it with the whole redemptive plan of God that says Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, even though that was 2,000 years ago. And there are other texts which combine all the elements of the completion of the redemptive plan of God. In Matthew 24, verse 3, Jesus' disciples asked him, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Coming, when they ask this word, it's the, it's the noun parousia, and it just generally means your presence, your advent. And in fact, parousia is sometimes used to speak specifically to the second coming of Christ with all of the saints, the true second coming. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 uses that way. Other times, parousia is used to refer to Christ coming to get all his saints at the rapture and resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 uses it that way. And yet at other times, it's used generally just for the whole end of the age. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 uses it that way. So the term parousia is used by theologians just to refer to the entire set of events that constitute Christ consummating all things. And so the the focus of verse 28 is the fact that salvation is consummated, it's finished, it's completed. As a matter of fact, in the Greek text, the last word in the sentence is salvation. And that makes it emphatic in Greek. The last thing you're meant to take away from this is salvation, salvation, salvation. And so our focus is those 
eagerly waiting is on the completion of God's plan of salvation in totality. Now, I know that if you've been at grace for any period of time, we we teach that at regeneration, at the moment of faith, your salvation is secured. It is done. It is complete. The work of Christ on the cross has been finished for you. Does that mean that the entire process has been completed though? No, it doesn't. Look in the mirror and count your wrinkles. You have more than you had a year ago. There is still a consummation that has to happen. There has to be the return of Christ. There has to be the giving of your resurrection body. We have to, we have to as it were, live through our own deaths. And so, yes, your salvation is completed in the record books of heaven. It's not completed in actuality yet. It's not finished. But that's what we wait for. In fact, the next phrase helps us. When Christ appears, it will be not to deal with sin. Not to deal with sin. Now, remember that the overall context of Hebrews 9 is the atonement from sin, but now in Christ, sin needs no more atonement. It's finished. There, there is the, the record books of heaven have been set straight as far as your forgiveness is concerned. All that's necessary now is for the repentant person to appropriate and to receive that which has been purchased at the cost of Christ's sacrifice, forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Sin has been dealt with, it's been taken care of, it's been, it's been uh, dealt with in a way that is eternal. You will never, ever appear before Christ to have your sins listed before you. Do you realize that? That will never happen. You will appear before Christ so that he can show the Father that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven. So Christ doesn't need to do any more atoning work. He said it on the cross. It is what? Finished. And that's a major reason that we're eagerly waiting for him. As a matter of fact, there's numerous other New Testament passages which speak of believers being eager for the appearing of Christ and they all have one particular contextual factor in common. Something else that's mentioned alongside. Revelation 22.20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's an eager saint, the Apostle John, eager for the return of Christ. But what's the context? Two verses earlier, the context is the judgment of the lost. Second Timothy 4, verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all to have loved his appearing. What's the context? The judgment of the lost. He is the righteous judge. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the judgment? By implication, judgment of the lost is the context because he's sustaining you guiltless as opposed to those who are guilty. Titus 2, beginning in verse 12, that God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. What is the context? Redemption from judgment. Colossians 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But the next two verses tell us, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
What's the context of eagerly waiting for Christ? The fact that judgment is coming to the lost. And in our text, those who are eagerly waiting for him, what's the context? Look at verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes what? Judgment. You see, our eagerness for the appearing of Christ is precious to us because we know that when we see him, we have in his blood, in his sacrifice, in his work on the cross, in his propitiation, in his satisfaction of the wrath of God, full pardon, full acceptance. In fact, we're the opposite of the rebels of the great tribulation. Here's what the rebels do. Revelation 6, 15 and 17, the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, they hid themselves and they cried out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. We're the opposite of that. Not us. We've loved his appearing. We're eager for his appearing. And our prayer is the same as the last prayer in the Bible. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. We're not like the false believer that John speaks of in 1 John 2, 28 when he says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not, listen to this, shrink away from him in shame at his coming. That's not us. We will not shrink away from him in shame. We will be like the prodigal son who runs into the arms of our Savior. And so that brings us to the key phrase to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The verb translated eagerly waiting occurs numerous times in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1.7, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Four verses later, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Galatians 5 verse 5, through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And in every case, there is a sense of expectancy and, and hope as we wait for the glories to come. As a matter of fact, in, here in Hebrews 9.28, the verb is in a form that indicates something internal, that it's a heart attitude, that it's something that just bursts forth from your soul, an eagerness for Christ. Now, you might be wondering, what does this have to do with the fact that I'm waiting on the Lord to help me through a physical trial? or through a financial struggle, or a broken relationship, or a long-term disabled child, or any other difficulties which confront me daily, I thought the whole point was having strength in the desert, not doing a lesson on eschatology. Well, I told you as I opened this message that when it comes to waiting on the Lord, there's an obvious conclusion we can come to from Hebrews 9.28 that we would dance all around that conclusion for a little while and that you would probably guess it along the way and you probably have guessed it it's really very simple the greatest key to waiting on the Lord is to wait for the Lord that's it the greatest key to waiting on the Lord is to wait for the Lord to look 
actively ahead to the coming of Christ, the whole parousia, to look beyond other things that you're waiting for and to wait primarily for him, to actively wait for your own personal eschatology, your home going either by death or by rapture and looking forward to that, to look to the rescue of God's people from the earth, the rapture and the resurrection, to look to the return of Christ and to understand that his kingdom will be set up and you're going to be a part of it. It won't be theory, it's real. That's how we look for the Lord. And listen, remember the context of Hebrews 9. This is so important that Christ is compared to the high priest who would enter the most holy place to make atonement for the sins of his people. And the Israelites would watch as their high priest went behind this curtain, this sacred curtain. No one could see what was happening as he presented to God the blood of the sacrifice. And if the high priest came out again. If he reappeared, then everyone knew that the sacrifice presented had been accepted by God, that atonement was made, forgiveness was secured, and blessing in God was secured. And verse 24 in this text says that Christ has entered the most holy place to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He is right now behind the holy curtain of eternity He is where we cannot see, where we cannot go. He is at the very throne room of God doing business with God the Father on our behalf, so to speak. And just as the people of Israel would rejoice when the high priest reappeared because that meant forgiveness was done, salvation was secured, so we eagerly await the reappearing of Christ when he comes out from the most holy place in heaven, which indicates salvation's plan is complete and forgiveness is secured. Do you understand that the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was simply a picture of what's going to happen in the great reality when Christ reappears at the second coming that is him coming out of the most holy place to say it's done. The deal has been made, come home. So again, what does this have to do with those things in this life for which I'm waiting? The greatest key to waiting on the Lord is to wait for the Lord, to look beyond everything else. Now, basically, the whole point of this message is what I have left to offer you now. It's one thing to say, okay, I'm waiting for the Lord, but the question is, how do I do that in reality? And I really wanted to get to this point. I want to offer you seven practical ways to eagerly wait for his appearing. Because it's one thing to say it, it's another one to do it. The Millerites of the mid-1800s waited for the Lord by selling all their possessions, closing down their businesses, wearing white robes, and climbing trees. Is that what we're supposed to do? No, we're told in multiple places in the New Testament that we're to live lives of holiness that are pleasing to the Lord in very practical ways. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, we're to aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, to work with our hands as they were instructed. So what do we do to wait for the Lord? Let me give you seven ways to do this. First of all, have a learner's mind about the end times. Have a learner's mind, a disciple's mind about the end times. I've preached through multiple end times passages in detail here at Grace Bible Church. We've done the entire book of Revelation. We've done every end times passage in the book of Isaiah. We've done Zechariah 14 numbers of times, every end times passage in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And so you have access to resources. Have a learner's mind. A third of our Bible is prophecy, and it's meant to be read. It's meant to create anticipation. It's, it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's meant to create a, a sense of eagerness. 
Doesn't Zechariah 14.9 create anticipation? And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Election day always happens on a Tuesday. I dream of the Lord returning on a Monday. (laughs) Right before, oh, cancel all elections. You're all fired or dead. Doesn't Isaiah 9 create anticipation? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That creates anticipation. It's meant to. So have a learner's mind about the end times. Here's a second way to wait for the Lord. Meaningfully connect current obedience to the coming of Christ. Meaningfully connect your current obedience with the coming of Christ. I think this is one of the greatest problems in American evangelicalism is that that sappy, moralistic sermons are preached with no connection to the return of Christ at all. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 begins almost immediately with some information, some reminders by the Apostle Paul about the coming judgment at Christ's coming. Paul calls this the righteous judgment of God in verse 5, that God will repay with affliction all those who persecute the church. He'll give relief to the church when Christ judges the lost. So what was Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the future? Here is his prayer, 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you. Remember, this is in light of coming judgment, coming of Christ. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in light of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our prayer is that you would live a Christian life that would reflect his grace and glorify God. It's tempting while you're waiting on the Lord for some resolution to put your own holiness, your own sanctification your own growth on the back burner. In actuality, while you wait on the Lord by learning to wait for the Lord, that's the time we're to strive for Christ's likeness the most, to pursue and to practice humble obedience. That's the whole point. Here's a third way to wait for the Lord. Read the book of Revelation regularly. Read the book of Revelation regularly. You recall the double blessing given in Revelation 1 at the beginning, 1 at the end. Revelation 1 verse 3 blesses the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Then at the end of the book, chapter 22 verse 7, Jesus said, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I'm so tempted sometimes on a Sunday night to just surprise you and just stand up here and read the whole book of Revelation aloud. I've timed it. It takes about an hour. How great would that be? Because there's a double blessing involved. Look, Revelation contains the revealing of Christ in much more glory than he's ever revealed in the Gospels. Chapter one, we see his magnificence as he truly is now. 
Chapters 2 and 3, we see him as the commander, the head of the church of Jesus Christ. Chapters 4 through 18, he is the, the central focus of heaven, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of all who would believe in him. Chapter 19, he's the conquering king preparing to return to earth and to take back what's rightfully his. In chapter 20, he's the judge of all the unbelievers of all the ages at the end of the millennial reign of which he is reigning. Chapter 21, he's pictured on new earth in New Jerusalem, on the throne, making all things new. And in chapter 22, Jesus is issuing literally the final instructions of the Bible through the Apostle John with the final words of Jesus Christ in Scripture being, surely I am coming soon. Those are his final words to us. Read the book of Revelation frequently. Here's a fourth way to wait for the Lord and eagerly await his coming. Grasp the kingdom focus of the Bible. Grasp the kingdom focus of the Bible. Don't ever read the Bible the same way again. Read the Bible in light of the coming kingdom. The Bible is not just a series of just over 31,000 unrelated verses which are to be cherry-picked for devotional use for whatever purpose fits the emotion I happen to be feeling this morning. The Bible is the revelation of God about his kingdom program, that he created God, created mankind rather, to rule his created earth in his glory, to his glory, and to his magnificence, to his magnification. But because of fall into sin of mankind, which was part of God's overall decree, by the way, the curse of sin necessitates now a coming Savior. And so God would raise up one man, Abraham, through whom he would raise up a nation, Israel, through whom he would bring this Savior as both God and man from heaven. And this chosen nation would be the means by which God makes himself known to the world. It would become the the capital nation of a multitude of nations who will ultimately serve and worship God, fulfilling the original purpose of mankind to rule the earth alongside God. If you read the Bible with this story constantly in mind, now now there's a flow, there's a direction, there's a hope, there's a yearning for the coming kingdom. Every verse in the Bible has a kingdom context to it. Did you know that? Every single one. Even and especially some of our most beloved verses, which were often taken out of context for our own emotional gratification. We'll use, uh, for example, Psalm 23, 1 and 2. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Yes, that's comforting, but what's the kingdom context? The, The hope here is a future hope as well. At the end, he says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And in the scope of biblical history, forever ultimately takes place on new earth when God's permanent forever kingdom has been established. Psalm 23 ultimately points to the kingdom. One that we love to put on plaques and take out of context. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But what's the kingdom context? The phrase called according to his purpose is soteriological. It's salvation-centered, meaning that the believer in Christ, the called one for him, all things will work for good. Why? Well, you have to keep reading. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also, anybody know the last word? 
glorified. Where does glorified ultimately take place? On new earth, when God's permanent forever kingdom has been established. You send me any verse of the Bible and I will show you that it is a, there is a kingdom context to it. If you will read the Bible with the flow of kingdom in your heart and in your mind, it will create anticipation because the Bible read properly is a page turner because you can't wait to get to the end. Here's a fifth way to wait eagerly. Remember the attitude of Paul. Remember the attitude of Paul. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 23, he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose, choose I, sh- I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Two basic lessons. Engage in fruitful labor now for the sake of Christ, and as Paul did, cultivate your desire and yearning to depart and to be with Christ. Do this on purpose. Think about it. One of the greatest joys I ever have as a pastor is to be with a believer in a hospital who knows that he or she is going to die. Because by God's grace, it seems in those final moments, in those final days, the anticipation is palpable. You can see an excitement. You can see a joy. You can see a a determination to finish well. How about this? How about develop that excitement now? How about live that way every day? Here's a sixth way to eagerly wait. Not only remember the Apostle Paul, remember the vision of Stephen. Remember the vision of Stephen, that first Christian martyr with that fabulous first name, not because I happen to have it, but the fabulous name because it means the crowned one. The crowned one. As he was being stoned to death for his testimony of Christ, Acts 7 tells us of something beautiful that the Holy Spirit did for Stephen. In his final moments on earth, he opened the curtains of heaven. Acts 7, 55 and 56, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Why not let that be your vision every day? Why not vision, envision that every day? That the one who is seated at the right hand of God in intercession for your sins will stand to receive one of his own, to receive one of his crowned ones home. One more way to wait with an eager anticipation. Encourage one another with the details of Christ's coming. Encourage one another with the details of Christ's coming. I've heard believers downplay the importance of eschatology, of the study of end times, simply because there exists disagreement about exactly what happens. Personally, I think a lot of the disagreement would be alleviated by less study of what scholars think about the Bible and actually just reading the Bible and letting it speak for itself. The fact is that the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, has significant amounts of material related to the final days of this earth, and it's given in detail 
And for example, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17 gives us details about the rapture and the resurrection. Amazing details. The cry of command by Christ himself for the dead to rise. The accompanying voice of an archangel. The sound of the trumpet of God. Meeting the Lord in the air. No frequent flyer miles needed. You can meet him for free. Always being with the Lord. These are tremendous details. These are glorious details. These are exciting details. And what does Paul tell us to do with these details? 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. To parakaleo, to counsel one another, to exhort one another, to urge one another, to implore one another boy, your, your life really does look terrible and I don't see a foreseeable end. But do you remember what's coming? you remember who's coming? Could I counsel you to look beyond your waiting trial now and look forward to Christ's return? We're to encourage one another. Eschatology is not primarily meant to be something we argue about. It's meant to be something we encourage one another with. The glorious hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, has two things I want to point out. It's one of my favorite hymns. First of all, most hymnals leave out two verses that are likely included in the original by Horatio Spafford. They're focused on peace while we wait for the Lord. Listen to these two verses. They're they're very unknown. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live, if Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life, Thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. And the other verse, But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. What a great focus. But there's something else I want to point out. The familiar last verse, which makes a scripture reference from the King James Version that's now often lost on us, It speaks of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The last line is, even so it is well with my soul. He's not saying, even though the Lord is returning, it's well with my soul. This is a reference to the last prayer of the Bible as translated in the old King James Version, even so come Lord Jesus. That's where our joy comes from. Spafford begins with his famous first verses about sorrows rolling over us. But the real hope is that they are coming for, for his coming. We wait. And because of even so come Lord Jesus, we have peace and we have tranquility in our souls. So the secret to waiting on the Lord is to wait for the Lord. Now, I began this series on having strength in the desert, on waiting on the Lord when he seems to be silent, when he seems to be inactive. I began 15 messages ago telling you about the desert owl of Psalm 102 and I'd like to end where we began a number of months ago as we wait on the Lord we can relate to the writer of Psalm 102 he's an afflicted man who was suffering greatly he was feeling abandoned by God and he said I am like a desert owl of the wilderness like an owl of the waste places in verse 6 and this particular owl is translated sometimes in Hebrew the little owl And it's listed among the unclean birds that were not to be eaten. This is not a popular bird. It it was a common bird in ancient Israel. It was nicknamed the mother of ruins because tombs and ruins seemed to always have a desert owl there. It, it it, It went to the dark, the dingy, the scary places. 
This is the cry of being alone in affliction, in a waste place in which it seems that all evidence of God is gone. In verse 2, the psalmist cries to God, do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. He's waiting, he's waiting, and he's waiting. And if you feel like the little desert owl of Psalm 102, I'm like a desert owl in the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places, there's more that we should know about that owl. The desert owl, as the sun is setting in the desert, as darkness closes over the waste places, it it sings this musical note that any ancient Near Eastern traveler would hear at dusk. And it always sways as it sings. In perfect contentment, a beautiful note. Even in the desert, even in the darkness, even in the waste places, even in the ruins, you can be the desert owl who, as it were, sings and sways in contentment. Content to be in the waste places, content to be in the desert, because you have a God who's already there in victory. Psalm 68, 4, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exalt before him. I hope that you will wait well, wait on the Lord by waiting for the Lord. Our Father, we thank you for this text this evening, which is so encouraging to our hearts. And may we be those who eagerly wait for Christ, that we are able to transcend our current suffering, transcend our current issues and problems, and realize that at your coming, at the parousia, everything's going to be resolved anyway. All debts paid, all diseases healed, all relationships fixed, all things resolved and so Lord if we would look beyond even those things that we wait for now to simply looking to our vision of Christ to be like Paul who desires to depart and be with Christ to be like Stephen and see the vision of the son of man standing at the right hand we would be stronger for it we would be more able to be at peace And Lord, that's what I pray for, for these precious ones listening tonight, for peace, for contentment, for that deep breath of joy that only the believer who looks forward to his coming can breathe. In the meantime, you have asked us to live lives of holiness. You have asked us to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. You've asked us to live quiet lives that are effective, that are useful for you. And might we wait for you in obedience as we wait for our King to return for us. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.